Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. I've paused recording new episodes for a break here at the end of 2022, but that doesn't mean that you have to go without. In the spirit of reinforcing my intention to create on-demand resources that stand the test of time, and that these episodes are not the you-had-to-be-there-each-week-when-they-were-released type, please enjoy some of my select replay episodes that have great guests, fantastic conversations, and valuable topics for elevating the architectural profession especially as it pertains to the role of technology in the evolution of architectural practice. If you want even more, please check out my Troxel episode database, TED for short, at trxl.co slash TED, where you can find my entire catalog of episodes categorized by keywords and more. As always, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. to kind of see where I thought um, things would be, but, you know, reflecting back in January, February, um, when, you know, um, I'm working with my staff and, and, and some clients to do like, Oh, let's, let's start mapping out these projects for 2020. And then things, everything just went, you know, yeah bananas and uh you know trying to make up ground in some areas seeing new opportunities in other areas which we didn't anticipate happening um it's been a it's been a roller coaster for sure um, yeah from a business standpoint i remember uh having a conversation with dave gilmore probably about this time last year and it was like you know we're 12 years into a 10-year uh recession cycle (laughs) and yeah. And it's like, so what's the outlook? And it was like, the next five years look amazing, you know? And then yeah. three months later, it's like, holy crap, throw the plans yeah. out. And it's and it's a different type of recession than, mm-hmm. than what we experienced in Completely. 2008. Completely. Completely different. Yeah. Because it wasn't, it's not, it, we haven't necessarily exposed some major flaw in the market that required a, massive correction which is what we saw in 08 right. housing right um crisis. completely different this is like a completely external factor yeah. um and and that has made any kind of prediction on okay what are the recovery um plans what are the what actions should we be taking uh, taking as businesses is this going to last three months is it going to last one year is it going to be you know two years, you know, you don't know like when things are really going to recover. And if I think about California and the movie and entertainment industry, um, that is, that is something I love. I, you know, I am a big fan of movies. I'm a big fan of going to the theater and seeing like how that shift is going to happen for the movie industry. And like, what happens to theater chains? What happens to how we get our content? Like, is it going to, are they going to need to figure out a video on demand thing? Are we going to see? What is deeper, entertainment anymore? Like fundamental yeah, questions. <laughs> well, I have to, I have to say like one, one of the things I've been um, experiencing on a personal level when it comes to any form of new content is uh-huh. that um, I can't consume it. Um, I'm like in a, in a mindset at the moment where new content is is really hard to absorb so i 
but I have great luck kind of going back into stuff that I always enjoyed. Maybe it's a kind of thinking about something familiar, thinking about some foundational stuff. So people are, you know, some people ask me, Oh, are you caught up on, you know, the, the second season of the boys? Uh-huh. Um, and I'm like, nah, I basically just watch Star Trek, the next generation. Every Dude, night. we're watching and- that too. <laughs> <laughs> like that just makes me feel better like i, totally. I just want something that, it's that, so clean you know, right <laughs> so clean they resolve these plots and they deal with they deal with heavy issues that we're all dealing with right now yeah uh, but they come at it from different angles um so yes yeah, star trek the next generation is like my you should go my to comfort blanket i hear that man i mean there's not too many things i was just having a conversation with my friend on on our other podcast about the thank God for these two shows. And it was the great British baking show and the Mandalorian at this, in this case, um, my but, wife's been watching the great British, British baking show. She loves that show. My son watches it with her. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not into cooking shows. I can't do them. It's a family uh, thing for us. To, this is like the show we watch together and that, that and the Mandalorian, which, you know, just started up this week. And then, um, next generation, like there's eight seasons. We're on season three and we're working our way through it, you know, on Netflix <laughs> and it's fantastic. I mean, I granted, I do sleep through a lot of them. Like it's just like oh, that's great. To, like I, if you want to just go to go to bed, like throw on some TNG, you're you're out right? by the, the <laughs> by the second act. You know, I mean, and then a part of it's just because I've seen them all so many times. Uh, a good a good a good set of episodes keeps me keeps me up. Like, um, you know, the the series finale, all good things. Uh-huh. parts one and two i will i i, I i'll burn through that because i i was in i was in grade school when that that yeah, came out yeah and uh it was like one of the first tv shows where my mom let me stay up past 10 oh my gosh yeah you know because yeah. she's like she knew how much i love trek so she's like okay you can stay up and watch the series finale and so I, i'll always sit through and watch that one the other one is the uh, best of both worlds parts one and two of course where captain picard um gets assimilated by the borg yeah huge <laughs> huge set of episodes yeah yeah you know. fundamental <laughs> formational i should say yeah like in your oh you, yeah like, who you are wow. yeah like and then also it's like one of those things where it's, it, was, it was new for tv because you you left on such a cliffhanger because it end like the first episode ends with Riker like looking at the assimilated picard and giving the order to fire. Oh my and he, gosh. Yeah. And, and then, and then it just ends. You had to wait a year to find out what happens. And, and you're like, well, we had no idea. Like that kind of television where you don't know what's going to happen. Like right. Trek was known to have, you know, plots just sort of resolve themselves after an hour, but you're yeah. like, Picard, this is, are they going to Picard yeah. off the show now? Like, we don't know. Like, wow. Yeah. And, and you, yeah, you think back to, to how that, how TV shows worked. Right. And it was very much like they were kind of standalone, especially in, in like these kinds of episodes, right. They could stand on their own and, and then they, they string a few together and then they string them over the off season together. Oh, painful, just painful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, that's good to hear that you guys have at least some respite in the (laughs) something that's not like, changing the world right under our feet you know it's like it is something nice to go back to that nostalgia and that uh that, like you said comfort it's like comfort food it totally is yeah exactly yeah we need more of that and you know and when it when it 
comes to just the uncertainty of our industry. I mean, we have, it's, it's been, we've been observing firms adapt. I've been observing firms um, having to, you know, change um, as well. And then, you know, make hard choices, right. you know, um, it's, but then I'm also seeing different groups embrace data and models in ways that I, I, I wouldn't have anticipated happening this year. I didn't think certain things were going to flip. And so when it comes to our, well, our business model, we're, you know, if I would have projected who our client base was going to be in 2020, mm. uh, back in January, it looks very different than what I thought. I mean, there, there's been a growth in our kind of owner operator market over the last couple of years. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, well, that pie is going to, you know, continue to grow. And maybe in three years time, it'll be the dominant voice in our kind of services. Um, that actually kind of happened overnight in, in a way that I wasn't expecting this year. We're yeah. all of a sudden we're doing business with uh, retailers and um, uh, healthcare campuses. Wow. And it's, it's been like, wait a minute, where'd that come from? Yeah. And sure enough, I mean, a, a lot of it has to do with folks that are trying to just recalibrate their business and also look for opportunities in like this kind of very expensive and slow and risky. Yeah building delivery process yeah. um, and look for opportunities to um, push that forward when you don't even know if, if you're going to need that, that thing. Right. Yeah. Or what to do with it, how you're going to be allowed to use it. <laughs> There's so yeah, many, exactly. so much kind of unknown there. It's pretty crazy. It's interesting to watch some clients like double down on like, there's nobody in our buildings. Let's do a bunch of stuff or let's build new ones or whatever. And and then there's the other ones who are like, man, we have just no clue what's actually going to happen, and we can't bet the farm on it, on on it yeah. being going back to the way that it was. It's there's two completely different mindsets. I was I was having a conversation with with someone yesterday, and it was like I, we brought up the the deal that REI just went through recently, where they you know they had this. I think it was an NBBJ or Gensler Design campus up in Seattle. You know about mm. this? They like a brand new campus, like huge campus. They had not even moved into it yet when all this happened. It was supposed yeah. to open like in June, and they completed the project, never moved in, and put it up for sale. And Facebook bought it. And I think <laughs> it's such a weird, like paradigm shift that we're seeing yeah. right in front. Like REI is brick and mortar. REI yeah. is the great outdoors, their retail, their, I mean, obviously they have this online component, but Facebook, a digital company doubles down on physical space and yeah. says, yep, we'll take that. Um, and because the way that we work the best, we found that it's best when people are together mm. and, and like, they're just like, that's a fully digital, like you could think that Facebook could easily operate in the over over the internet 100% all the time. Uh, I think that that's really interesting to kind of watch how people are kind of strategizing for the future in very different ways. One of the things that I've heard um, play out is architecture companies that, you know, it, it's been, it's been a thing that people have been saying, you know, they've told me this for, for, for years when I was doing my, you know, cutting my teeth on projects at MPBJ and, elsewhere is that design is not something that you can easily do in a remote capacity. Mm-hmm. And there was always a reluctance to sort of let someone work from home. It always seemed like yeah, the pressure totally. was on to be present in the studio and, and mm-hmm. to work. Um, but that switch flipped overnight. And in parallel with that concern, 
um, had always been a, a, when we would do strategic engagements, we would see that one of the biggest areas of friction that their IT groups were concerned about, principals were concerned about, any lead of a project is concerned about is work sharing and how, how they can start to leverage staff across offices and across, you know, the United States or globally. And two things have happened on that front. One, I think the architecture companies by and large have proven that, Hey, design and the design process for, for buildings can happen remotely. Mm -hmm. um, And people can, get their home offices set up and people can be efficient in talking to each other over these uh, virtually, which I think is, is a really interesting kind of paradigm shift for many. Yeah. There's certainly struggles with it. There's no doubt about it, but um, it's being proven that it can be done. The thing that is the, another benefit of the whole shift has been reflections on, wow, all of a sudden my, I seem to be able to work share I don't know if it was like a psychological thing about there being a physical office in play or something like that. But all of a sudden, when people went to work from home, they had to be more self-sufficient and maybe they started to be a little bit more also outgoing, like, Hey, I'm going to chat with my, my, I'm in Detroit. I'm going to chat with my, my buddy over in Los Angeles and uh, see if there's any work that I can help with. And so it becomes like this sort of personal initiative that's occurring and the boundaries of these offices um, are kind of dissolving and, and large companies are starting to realize that, Hey, we can actually pull off this one company thing in a way that we didn't think we could before. It's really interesting because uh, it is, you know, I think, I think of two things when you're kind of talking about this stuff. Number one is, have you seen that meme about um, what forced your your company to go fully digital, right? It it, was it the CEO, the CTO, or was it COVID-19? And obviously COVID-19 was, (laughs) was circled. So urgency is everything because we didn't have to change before we didn't change. I think it's right. actually like that simple. Right. And it, so, so it's, it's like, this is comfortable. This is what we know. This is how we've done it. And this forced everybody to kind of rethink that. Um, number two, like luckily th- the infrastructure of the internet is in place to enable this to happen. That's a huge huge thing. I think now what companies are are struggling with is having business licenses everywhere so that they can have actual employees everywhere or anywhere. It was probably a better way to say it because I know we've struggled with that in our firm. It's uh, somebody wants to move to a different state and obviously they're going to do that. It's a life change. It's a big decision and can't continue to work for the company because we don't technically do business there and don't plan on it. So it it starts to bring up ideas around like, how can we lobby the laws to change around this so that we can have people wherever they want to be without incorporating their own business, without bringing on other companies to work for as consultants, because like in our industry as well, you have to do that. You can't just work for one company and be a consultant, right? Mm-hmm. Um so I think there's other, like it's, it's actually just put the spotlight on some of these other issues that are, that are always lurking, but no one really pays attention to until it's, until you need to address it. And now it's like, oh man, what, we're going to lose that person. They were amazing. Um, somebody else is going to get them because of these kind of laws that no one was paying attention to before. Yeah. Oh, one of the things, like we're, we're all, we're, we all live in different States on our team or, yeah, we're, we're only five people. Um, 
one of the things that has really taken the edge off of that from a logistics standpoint is that we have a um, we have an HR uh, company mm-hmm. that we contract with uh, that handles all the state by state setup. Um, they're basically treating like anyone that's contracted with them as an HR resource as nice. you know one big company. Yeah. So I'm able to like. You know, we had, an, had a, a team member, Kristen, who was working with me here in Omaha, and she wanted to make a life change and move to Oklahoma to be closer to her son. And she, uh, you know, with with Trinet, we we're able to say like, "Hey, I've got an employee moving," and you know, uh, they can they can act on behalf of the company to get all of the requisite Secretary of State nice tax state tax set up in those you know other states, and it kind of makes it pretty pretty seamless in some ways um setup is not necessarily inexpensive at the outset but once it's all set up we're all good to go yeah it's interesting to me to think about that from like a small firm perspective as well where Mm -hmm. there's lots of potential for shared resources Mm -hmm. uh but kind of combining together and acting more like a large firm with those shared resources without being a large firm right so that's one of the hardest things about competing with large firms is just their access to resources and having all of this infrastructure in place and having specialized teams to handle certain things while your design team is doing what they do and your business development team is doing what they do. So obviously if you're the small shop, you're doing all those things. Um, so it seems really interesting to me, like from our, our scale of our profession, that lots of small firms have the ability now to kind of band together with these back end resources mm-hmm. and therefore, you know, combine to conquer and then compete with these larger firms. That's right. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, uh, it's a, a lot of changes in licensing models for technology um, mm-hmm. is also equipped yeah. that if I think back, you know, back in uh, when I was in LA before I joined case, which is the group out of New York City um, that really got me started on the whole billing information, modeling, computational design, consulting uh, side of things. Pulled me away from conventional practice. Before that, I was actually like sketching up a little business plan. I'm like, you know, if I were to move somewhere, like go back to the Midwest and I needed to set up my own company, what would be the startup cost? Yeah. And this was like pre Office 365 subscription software hadn't really come into play yet. Right. And the the first cost of like getting the right licensing for all the stuff I would have to like do it, it was is much higher yeah. at least on paper when I was sketching it all out, and then subscription models started to change that a bit. So the first cost was less. Um, I you're paying more in the long run, I think, for a lot of these things. Um, but I think the the advantage to, for small companies uh, is is there um, yeah. when it like, Hey, I can actually, actually, I can actually spin something up and have these tools, um, ready to go for me. And it's not going to be as financially difficult. Yeah. Um, yeah. but then when you get to the scale of like a, a firm like yours, you have, you know, things have moved to subscription and now you're talking about, I'm, I'm, I'm just assuming here, um, kind of increased costs of software over time. Oh, for um, sure. Yeah. Huge, huge. <laughs> I, I, it's interesting because on the small firm scale, uh, it reduces the need potentially to a hundred percent of it. Like you just don't need it to spool up a creative cloud, you know, subscription to spool up a BIM 360 subscription, whatever those things might be. 
yeah. so so like yeah they're taking those kinds of the hours yeah. it takes to kind of figure all that stuff out to deploy it to get it like those companies have kind of taken over that uh in large companies we've got both <laughs> we've got yeah the subscription fees and like the big numbers of, of people using those things. But we also have the full-time IT department because I mean, this kind of starts to point at your blog post that you put on proving ground about computers being hard, right? Yeah. It's actually not easier to yeah. deal with, right? It it's, it is, it is easier, but it doesn't mean it's not hard. I think is how you put it. It's really strange to see and, and think about um, when we think about the promise of technology uh, for the building industry and, and in general, you know, there's a couple of things I always like to think of as pointers um, that, that are, are kind of determining what are we making some level of progress in some areas and uh, over others, mm-hmm. lower costs of software, um, you know, and pushing towards something that maybe wants specialized to a commodity um, type of scenario where, oh, and, you know, the, the establishment of skill sets at one point being highly specialized requires advanced skill set, the, the need for that skill set to, you know, basically enter the general population. And now it's, uh, you're in that kind of early and late majority uh, of adoption. So, you know, the, the skill set becomes less, you know, maybe in demand or, you know, might be more of a commoditized skill set now. In some areas that has happened, uh, you know, we can look and, and maybe you can even reflect on this at, at your company, but visualization, yeah. you know, rendering huge, huge, huge changes just in the last couple of years, right. even, which is bananas. Like I remember like, you know, burn the midnight oil on a rendering, um, in a comp for doing competitions between 2007, you know, through 2012 or whatever, when I was working at MBBJ and you mm-hmm. Um, and then you're coordinating or with an outsource rendering company in some cases. And so there's like time invested in that. But in the last couple of years, you know, my wife's an architect. So, and she also does a fair amount of rendering as part of her normal day-to-day business. Uh-huh. Um, Enscape comes along, you know, and it's that, that you know, tools like that, Lumion as well. They just caught on like wildfire. Yep. You're like, boom, okay, I don't know, have to wait for my V-Ray rendering to get a decent image and I can do post-production right. on it if necessary. So it's like, you know, all of a sudden you, you saw this like bundle of hours that were going into producing these images basically shrink to a, you know, a few minutes. They're free. That. Yeah, yeah, they're and, totally free now. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in the parallel with that, you know, it was, it was also interesting to see how the VR conversation changed with those commodity tools kind of entering it. Yeah. Uh, because you would see firms investing rather substantial sums of money to try to like be the first on the VR front and bring VR to their clients and test to see how that was going to help sell a design or inform a client on how some, some space is going to feel. Um, but then, you know, these, these tools come along or it's like, couple of button pushes and you've got yourself a, an yeah. experience yeah it's the it's like the iphone app model right where where i i kind of i was thinking about this when i was reading through uh your computers are hard article because it seemed i think you published that in april of this yeah. year and then yeah. we saw the um the open letter to autodesk and to andrew agonost right. about, from the 30 firms in the uk and to me, like if I were just to distill that down, it was like, this is too difficult to use um, for how much we're paying for it. It's getting harder to use. It's taking more expertise and specialization. We're actually having to hire 
new additional roles to manage this stuff because you keep changing the the management model on the user side. Um, like I know we've done that at our firm. We have a, a BIM 360 person. Like that's all they do is they set up BIM 360. And it's it's that big of a job. And we've got a full-on training department to train people on how to use this because it's not push button, right? It's There's a million buttons. There's not one, right? So um, it's interesting to see like the rendering example go from, because I used, when I took a tangent from architecture at one point, I think this was in, I'm trying to guess, 1999, right? And I went off and started my own visualization company, which was me, mm-hmm. myself, and I. And I had a few computers laying around and I had to do all of the network rendering myself. I had to buy the software to do it and pay for it all up front. You know, it was 4,000 bucks or something to buy the software. I was electric image in that case, you know, if anybody wants to go down memory lane with me and using form Z for modeling. So I, I had, I purchased all these things up front. I was doing all of the management myself you would wait for days for those renderings to come together, right? And and like if you're doing animation, it's it's days if not weeks. Network rendering, frames coming back black. You've got errors that you've got to deal with. And like you said, now it's just free. It's five hundred bucks for Enscape. It looks good enough. And oh, and I, I would even add on top of that original rendering, you also had to be either a Photoshop or an After Effects artist as That's well. Right. To, to do all of the correction, and we started coming up with all this crazy multi-layered rendering so that we could adjust in post because everybody knew it was way better to adjust with the slider in Photoshop rather than re-render a frame, right? So we had matte ID layers and depth layers and diffuse and reflect. Like, you could adjust it all after the fact. Um, those were the pros. Now, just pop off another rendering. Like, no big deal, right? <laughs> exactly, Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to watch that, like that whole. It, that's like a canyon that's been carved, and and you look at it, the other kind of parallel canyon that's been carved with Revit, for instance, and it's just you ha- you have to be more and more and more of an expert, not not the Enscape model. Yeah, and it's not you know uh, it's not getting any cheaper either. Mm-hmm. You know, Re- Revit, and and it's also Revit's been on a you know it's been on an eighteen year trajectory. Yeah. You know, we, we, I think we often forget how old Revit is and not to say there hasn't been, you know, improvements and, and things of that nature as it, as it's gone along. And it's a very sticky software. It's really hard to think about, you know, if there was going to be a new platform that's going to come in and change up the, the industry in some way, what that would look like because of all of the, it's not just about like making a switch for your company. You have to think about, okay, well, I need to be able to integrate with my structural engineers, yep. MVP, um, all that training contractor, all the trades. And so m- thinking about a platform switch is extremely difficult. Yep. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's the, the love, the amount of training that goes into maintaining the software, people having to employ coders and software developers to get the tool to do what it needs to do in order to, overcome certain hurdles in a practice um you know tools like dynamo and grasshopper they've introduced the visual programming uh paradigm which is you know low code theoretically Mm -hmm. um but you still need a high level of expertise yeah Yeah. you need a high level of expertise to do it and that's that's an often overlooked side of this i mean if you would have talked to nate miller 10 years ago when i was first getting into grasshopper 
um, and really starting to adopt that, you know, you would have asked me, I'd be like, Oh, well, the future is, you know, the arch- architects and um, everyone's going to be using this in 10 years. You know, it's going to be like, you know, very democratized and more people are going to be using grasshopper. It's true that more, it's more, it's far more spread out. Now you can find folks that have had exposure to it at school and are coming into practice. It's still very rare to find the expert kind of computational talent out yeah. there. Right. You know, very, very hard. Um, and a couple of levels above that, you have the ability to write software at all. Um, mm-hmm. And that is extremely hard to find. And I think a, a lot of, a lot of it is driven by, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be the one the person to say that, Hey, you know, you're going to, you're going to need to, you know, architects are going to have to learn how to code. I, I'm not going to be that person to say that some people find that surprising that I would be one that doesn't say that. there's just so much on the art on, on the backs of architects right now, all the responsibility, yep. you know, to be a good project manager, like that takes dedication to make that happen. And there's not enough bandwidth for someone to, to be like, Hey, if I've got talent in the space to run a good project to then be like, okay, well I have to learn how to code too. That's hard. Um, very competent design professionals out there that, that are paying attention to materials um, and experience, you know, those, that's a form of specialization. The idea that you can understand the building code uh, to evaluate, um, you know, uh, your, your project is another set of, of knowledge and experience. And there's a lot of responsibility that falls on um, building design and construction professionals. And to think, okay, we're going to layer in, expert software development at the same time, it's, it's a really hard pill to swallow. I think for many, not to say that it's not delivering value where, you know, practices are finding value. There's some ext- extremely talented people in practice yeah, right now yeah, that are right. doing some crazy cool stuff, but uh, that's a rare, rare, rare thing. Yeah. I think there's also just kind of this, uh, I don't know if it's a, if many people think about it this way, but I, I definitely do is I, I think you have to be a generalist to become a leader in a company like that mm-hmm. um, instead of an expert. And so at some level, I think people, there's this weight on people, potentially at least, do you go down this expertise route and basically get pigeonholed? I, I get, you know, to put it bluntly, yeah. to do this thing for a very long time. Or are you able to, and, and can you then pivot and take a step back and enable others to do that so that you can oversee this very complicated profession that we live and work within yeah. um, or, or not? Or do you go the other generalist route and become, you know, the orchestrator of architecture, but not the doer of tasks specific to any particular role that it takes to have a successful building happen these days Um, because honestly like people who are really good project managers and really good project architects and really good coders like there's a lot of value there and so that like it makes sense i think for them to kind of stay there but also like realize that as far as like corporate ladders go yeah like it's kind of not an option for the for people like that it's hard. And, and I think there, this, there is a bit of trailblazing that has yet to happen, perhaps. Like if I think uh, there, there, I, I have friends and have had friends that have had that anxiety of like, I'm, you know, I'm getting pigeonholed into this rendering role, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm really good at it. 
Um, but I feel like that's all I'm getting now are people like sending me their project just to render. And there's, in in my view, um, there's two paths. There is one path, which is like, absolutely, you're going to get pigeonholed and you might need to change direction and, you know, try to generalize yourself a little bit more. Or you take that experience and you try to um, pivot it into something bigger. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you're really good at rendering and people are recognizing your talent in this space of visualization, you should be advocating for and gunning for a role such as like an art director um, for a company Mm -hmm. um, or kind of looking at a create, being a creative director in that same company. And you could potentially carve that out for yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Same with like, you know, if you're, if you're ace on the coding front and you're start or you're bringing like some kind of technology knowledge um, to your company and your company may not have like a CTO or, you know, CIO position yet, maybe that becomes your trajectory and that you, you start to uh, really push your leadership on like, Hey, I can do this, but I can also see the bigger picture and let's put our heads together and create a strategy for how you know, I may be able to get there to a, to a level where I'm at, at the table with y'all to help make to, uh, decisions for the company. I, I guess the distinction that I make, and I, I absolutely agree with you, uh, because I know m- among other people than myself who have done similar things to what you just said, like I, I know personally somebody who did exactly what you just said from visualization to creative director. And it takes a willingness to let go of being <laughs> the one who pushes the buttons and pulls the knob, you know, because if you if you can't let go of that you can't do it all like you you can't be the one who makes the renderings and does the creative direction because they both take so much time and i honestly feel like leadership from that more generalist perspective that i described earlier really requires you to be willing to share in that burden but also share in the success of what people can do when they're enabled to do something well, somebody needs to be the advocate for those people. Like it can't all be self advocating. And I think that's where a lot of people fall short in that, uh, in, in actually becoming leaders is that they still feel kind of, I don't know. I I think it's just like, they, they really like doing it. Like there's nothing and there's nothing wrong with that, but they also have kind of worked their way up this seniority ladder that doesn't square with, the kind of enabling that they need to be doing to others within a company. That, that certainly resonates with me for sure in the, um, the kind of the business ownership side of things and, and trying to build up a, a company that has certainly a level of specialization among the staff, but, but still wanting to make tools. <laughs> yeah. And myself, you know, you know, yeah, wanting to, wanting to code and wanting to build stuff up and have, you know, experience doing that. And, you know, the idea of letting go is, is, uh, it's hard. Um, but in some, in some ways, if you get the right team and you get people that you can trust, you can do it. Um, it's really hard to let go if you don't trust your people. Yes. Um, yeah. and, um, and then you, you can, you know, focus on mentoring in some way. Uh, that's something that, uh, you know, I'm learning how to do and trying to learn how to do, you know, um, if, if I can get, my team, you know, one of my team members to kind of go off and do their thing. And maybe they're, maybe they hit a roadblock uh, in their development or they have a question that I may have encountered before um, and be able to say like, Oh no, you should look at, at, at this. Um, 
that to me gives me a, a thrill at the mm-hmm. moment, like mm-hmm. being able to sort of let the talent do the talent. But then when it, when it comes to a critical juncture, I can like impart some, some knowledge and experience to help move the project forward. That's, that's great. Um, but I think the other, the other side of it is also just finding, f- trying to find fulfillment in, in other aspects there are certain parts of, of the, the work that we do still that I'm, I'm deeply involved in. Like, you know, I'm the, you know, I code conveyor um, mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm getting these you know, help to get a lot of these products off the ground um, and, and think about like that kind of model and how we might, you know, bring some things to market and, but, but also, you know, help maintain and help support these things almost as a user in some, in some capacity. That's been exciting. You know, there's other stuff like finding a hobby is, has been a, a great kind of mental reprieve. Cause if I'm like spending a day working on contracts, statements of work, executive summaries, those aren't necessarily the three things that I got into this this business to do and like, making and, YouTube videos, doing marketing, and, make, and yeah, and making and making yeah YouTube training videos. <laughs> well, you know, I, I I I've been really into three D printing um, and building, you know, just fun stuff for my kid and and for myself. Um, and what what that entails is like going back and doing just classic surface and solid modeling uh, in Rhino. Um, not worrying about if I need to get into Revit or not. I just need to worry about the STL. Yeah. And not like, worrying I, about I, what the drawings are going to look like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's and as no much choice. as I, as much as I love grasshopper and the computational paradigm, like at, at I think at my core, I love, I love modeling technique. I yeah, love me too. clean meshes. I love the idea of working with surfaces and making just really nice, well-crafted models that yeah. if I take them to my printer, um, they're going to print and they're going to be really nice. Um, I love that. Yeah. And you know, I'll, that's what I'll do, um, you know, in the, in the evenings and in the weekends and it kind of, you know, keeps, keeps me sharp with the tools. I can answer Rhino modeling questions still. That's like a thing <laughs> like, but you know, on that note, just speaking of commodity, I don't know. Have you looked at the prices of 3d printers recently? What's, what's HMC? Do you, are you doing any? Yeah. So we've got a, a series of kind of the Ultimaker, which are, you know, I wouldn't call them Cadillac, but I wouldn't call them Hondas either. I, they're somewhere in the middle. I don't know. They're, they, what's nice about them is they just work, but I think that they're three to $5,000 each, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors. You've heard about Avail here on the Troxel Podcast, and I'm excited to tell you they have a new message for you, my friends. Avail is designed by designers for design professionals, so it's no wonder Avail focuses on visuals in its platform. While Avail has always provided high-resolution previews, there are some new visual enhancements you should know about. These are channel cards and key cards. They're visual gateways to your content, and they're both customizable. Channel cards have been available since Avail Desktop 4.0. Think of them like album covers for each content channel you create. Channel cards are designed to make navigating your firm's assets quick and easy. And with channel cards, the look and feel of Avail conforms with your firm's standards. Next up is key cards, and these are the latest addition to Avail and are available since version 4.3. What are they? Keycards visually group content within a channel, and they derive data from your tags to make finding content easier. So they're created from the work you've already done. By adding custom graphics to your keycards, navigating content within a channel improves immediately. 
Keycards also drive the breadcrumb trail in the latest Avail Desktop 4.3 release. Navigate through your channels using breadcrumbs. And a new breadcrumb control is displayed on a channel when navigating with keycards. Breadcrumb items allow the user to navigate to the previous state easily. To see all of these new visual enhancements in action, head over to getavail.com to learn more. That's getavail, G-E-T-A-V-A-I-L.com to learn more. And now let's get back to our conversation. So what got me into it was a year ago, it was around Halloween. So I was looking at like people that were making costumes and stuff and how 3D printing is so big in, in costuming and cosplay prop and yeah, all cosplay, that all that stuff. I'm looking at what people are making. I'm like, it's like, amazing. How, how are they, you know, what, what, what are they buying um, to, to, to get this stuff going? Because they're pretty big pieces typically. Yeah, some of them are big pieces. Some of them, some of them are also just just the amount of post production that goes in. It could be on a small printer, but then they, you know, piece it all, bond, yeah. you know, piece it all together, and then you know, layer of bondo, a lot yeah. of sanding, yeah. paint. It looks like a piece, like Iron Man costumes. That's what I was going to say. Bananas, yeah, yeah. like totally. bananas. <laughs> but I was like, okay, well, what, 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 what are people using to to make this? And I came on the uh, a model of three D printer. It's called an Ender Three. Mm-hmm. I've seen that sub $200. That's incredible. They retail for like, you can get them, you can go to the Creality's website and they're like 179.99, you know, wow. a spool of PLA around between anywhere between 18 and $25 for uh, one kilogram of this stuff. You can get set up with an entire 3d printing shop. I have two Ender threes over here in the corner um, that I'll have going. And with, the, my first purchase was an Ender 3 and two spools of black, and it was like less than $250. That's incredible. And they work really well. It takes about an hour to self-assemble them. Um, handful of issues every now and then, like bed leveling. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't auto-level the bed, so you have yeah. to like kind of work with that. But I'm like, holy crap, why doesn't every architecture firm just yes. give every staff member a 3d printer at this point, because this stuff is powerful. Like, can I tell you like the most frustrating story about 3d printers ever is, <laughs> is like this thing is pr- like, you can, I don't know if you can see behind. Yeah. Me, yeah. But I've got a bunch of stuff. Like it's actually like printing algorithms. Like that's what this stuff is. I take my algorithm and I'll print it out because yeah. guess who likes to look at this stuff? Old architects, <laughs> old architects like to hold these they things in it. their hands and like look through them and, and it, it speaks a language that they speak and it really helps kind of sell that. Um, so the most frustrating story is like, this is, this is magic. This thing came out of my computer. I didn't even have to, I didn't have to do hardly anything. Like I'm using yeah. open source software to create the, the file that creates the G code that the printer reads and it just starts printing. The most frustrating thing is, Wait, what? That thing takes 18 hours to print? Yeah, it's the time. I'm like, it's magic. <laughs> yeah. You're you're no one you're not even paying somebody to do that. It's magic. It's coming out. Yeah, but can it be faster? I'm like, oh man. And, and so it, it kind of goes back to that rendering thing, right? Where it's like it used to take 18 hours to cook one frame overnight, you know, with ray tracing. Um uh, back in the day when we had 233 megahertz computers, right? Um, and now they're free. And I wonder, like, are we going to get to the point where this is free or direct to model fabrication or 
like where that just happens and it happens fast? Is that going to happen with our drawings? Like, you know, the validity of drawings as a deliverable in the future aside, potentially, Mm -hmm. could it be possible that we like, like we have to get there. I think a lot of people forget that we have to get there to that point. And there's, and there is a process to getting there and Mm -hmm. we're kind of figuring a lot of those things out right now. But um, it's also incredibly frustrating to have gone through the process where in school we built models by hand. We built study models out of chipboard and basswood and yeah. glue. And now everybody in school either doesn't model anything at all or they 3D print it. Like that's the only acceptable method of modeling nowadays for physical modeling. And I'm I'm talking about, about guys who've been in the business for 30 plus years and they're like, why isn't that faster? And it's like, come on, man. That's you that's insane thing to say. <laughs> so yeah, it is, I mean, it is ridiculous. I mean, if I think about like, you know, what you had in your hand, you know, what takes anywhere between eight, 14 hours yeah. uh, to do. It's a work day. Yeah. You know, you know, let it go overnight. You'll, you'll have it by morning. Exactly. It's like overnight, it's over, it's overnight shipping yeah. for most parts, you know, and that is, that to me is, is fast, especially if you think about, well, the reduced cost of these machines um, and that cost continues to reduce over time. A lot of these, you know, uh, the ABS printers uh, that have the, you know, very durable plastic, you know, those require venting mm-hmm. um, and things like that. PLA printers do not. Mm-hmm. So you just have them sitting in your room and you don't have to worry about fumes. It's getting to the point where, you know, apart from maybe the wait time, Mm-hmm. And you want, you kind of want, I feel like you need to have a wait time because you want to make sure that the thing's not going to like break because you can get these, you can really speed up these, yeah. these printers, but they end up with really fragile pieces. Um, but how much more satisfying was it back in the day with film cameras and Polaroids where you had to wait for that thing to, to develop, or you had to send it out for processing. That's kind of what we're doing now. And I think in this world of kind of instant gratification, it's, it's harder to, <laughs> for me to stomach those complaints. It's like, yeah. There, there is something like you were just saying in the very beginning here about like having to wait a whole off season for that cliffhanger to be resolved. Like there's something actually kind of there, there is something evolutionary too. about that, right? That, that makes it have more importance. Uh, and I kind of wonder, you know, with the whole idea of like push button um, building design, right? Or um, any of these things where it's, it's kind of like careful what you ask for. Right. Because if yeah. it takes away the meaning of it and the importance of it and the kind of the weight of the decisions that went into that and the consideration and the synthesizing of all of the requests and constraints into, you know, for going from complete uncertainty to certainty. This is a building. Here's why we did it. Here's what we're hoping to accomplish with it. And then we'll study it after the fact and make sure that it's actually doing those things. There's a lot of weight and meaning to all of that. And I, I would just, like, I guess my, my thinking right now is, like, caution people to be careful what you ask for with when it comes to speed and instant gratification for all of this stuff. Because I don't feel like our business is is well positioned to be easily accepting of always more efficient and always more productive, which is kind of what computers always promised and never delivered on, right? Yeah. Um, it's a, But it, to me, it's kind of like there's got to be some like an, an old parable or a wisdom in there to, to be careful about what we're actually asking for or what certain people are asking for. Yeah. I, I like that. And, 
And it also parallel, I mean, speed is one volume of information is another. Uh, it's, you know, what you've just described is in some ways been my kind of primary critique of this, this current hype and you know, in some ways fetishization over generative mm. design and, and, and generative, like a very kind of narrow kind of definition of that, which is the rapid optioneering um, and exploration of the design space, which always, uh, I, I've yet to see a, a, a study that, has convinced me that um, more is better <laughs> or is better. Well, one more is better. And number two, that the kind of algorithm curate and the curation of information that would go into the algorithm is producing anything other than a cartoon of the design process. Like there's so much that goes into planning a building. Yeah. And, and it's one of the, Every now and then we'll get we'll get hit up with like, hey, can you help us build an automatic space plan generator? And kind of my default response has become not really, and and for a number of reasons. Um, the amount of expertise that's required to build, say, a common clinic space, and the amount of edge cases that exist in a given footprint or an existing building like let's say an existing like test fitting an existing commercial space there that that's there is a lot to figure out in in that Absolutely. and you could either and you could invest your time into trying to make an algorithm that'll do it but the algorithm as you kind of go down that path is going to become have a narrower and narrower and the more it's able to solve the narrower and narrower the use case for that algorithm becomes because yeah. it's like oh okay now i can only really apply this in this one kind of context, really and specific. Yeah. becomes very specific. And, you know, I, you know, when I see attempts at like those types of test fitting tools, um, they, they always either come off as to me, oversimplified studies or the resultant output is so feels so generic and void of, anything that I would really want to experience in like the urban landscape setting. And that might sound very old school to some people. Maybe I'm sorry. Maybe as I get older, I start to become more and more of the, the codger of like, well, you know, it's missing the, some kind of spirit of design or, or something like that. But, you know, as I, as I, as I kind of go down this path and look at technology and look at, you know, what's being produced mm -hmm. and what the aim is like for me, the a driving factor and all of this stuff when it was when I was first getting the grasshopper I was like wow I can start to realize some really powerful design vision that couldn't have been executed before yeah. um or couldn't or wouldn't have been easier as easy to deliver before and you know and, and by some utilization or orchestration of technology we can produce a built environment that is measurably measurably better in terms of its experience and its performance than than we could uh before but this idea that technology can also be used to make stuff faster and as generic as possible um, is a real danger. I feel, um, you know, all of a sudden we're using technology to create sameness rather than delight. Um, and I think that's a, that's a problem. And that's sort of why I like to think about how, do, how can we start to orchestrate the tools to not from an automation and optimization perspective, but, um, kind of almost as a equipping of a designer and their intuition with more information to, uh, to help, you know, make guide them to make better decisions, but also allow the kind of the intuitive aspects of 
you know, what does it feel like to be in the space? You know, from an engineer's perspective, can I actually start to measure and verify that this thing is going to perform like I, like I think it's going to be, can I find some kind of new opportunity to introduce a structure that will save time and material cost, but also kind of support the design vision that kind of, um, maybe, maybe it doesn't create as buzzy of a sales pitch for new tools. Like you would say like, Hey, I can generate a thousand options. Now you can only generate three, like, Sounds that's going to get it. Yeah. That's going to get a headline. It sounds yeah. awesome. Yeah. But at the same time, like, so what? And did you learn anything? I think that one of the things that often gets le- left out of that conversation is, uh, yeah, personally, I could generate two or three schemes in the time that <laughs> and way longer of an amount of time that it would take that computer to generate a thousand. But between schemes one and two and between schemes two and three, I have learned a lot about the project. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is the thing that we see really lacking in these tools is that it's not learning. It's just, it's just spitting out options. Like it is really that simple. It's, it's not saying this one's better because, and using that, you know, I know there's a lot of like genetic algorithms out there that do attempt to kind of solve for different levels of fitness that, that it is maybe getting more towards a point of optimizing for some goal, but like you said, there's so many inputs that we are synthesizing as real people and to real meaningful design and experience uh, that is measurable at some point, hopefully, um, that it's really hard to capture all that in an algorithm. And therefore, like, I, I remember the early promise of of generative design being like, it can give you options you would have never thought of as a potential starting point. Mm-hmm. But that how is that any different than what you're already doing? Like I already never thought of this project uh, until, until I started looking at the problem. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I mean, the idea that you're, how, how, how do you know I wouldn't have thought of that? Like that's, that's like, can, can you really demonstrate? I wouldn't have thought it like yeah. the, 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 <sighs> yeah, that's a broken argument for sure. That's exactly right. It's a broke, it's a broken argument or it's one that's like, I don't know if it's somewhat of a, some sort of fallacy yeah logical you know? fallacy or something yeah my a logical fallacy i'm like yeah. well every project's like that i could sit here with a piece of trace paper and design something after learning about the problem but if i would have gone but i just thought of it like i never th- i never thought of this before until i actually started yeah, yeah. it's like it's yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's weird because like i think the people asking for this are not people who actually design buildings uh, they yeah. are somehow involved in the process where they or the company could get some kind of gain out of gaming that, you know, what they might call an antiquated process. Um, but is it really going to make better architecture? I, and I think, you know, there's probably, there's probably a, a spectrum to this. Uh, not every building in the world can or will be like expertly designed. We see it all the time. Most of us live in houses that were, you know, off the shelf, either tracked home or plan out of a book of plans or et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then we experience some architecture in our life, which is a very small percent. You know, some some have claimed it's 1% of the, of the built environment or less. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the truth is there's something in the middle too, right? Which is like better designed spaces at more scale and more volume. Yeah. But it's 
to me that that seems to be the most promising aspect of something like this, where where if a firm or an architect can encode kind of their approach into a repeatable solution yes. that is going to be applied at scale, which is not most quote unquote architecture. Um, that's usually a one-off thing. Then, yeah, the world does need more of that. Like we, it can improve people's day-to-day stuff. And sure. not every building needs to be, you know, to use the buzzword bespoke. That's right. But it doesn't doesn't mean that it's like all or nothing. It doesn't mean that you only go down one of those routes. Like I think we still want to have the impact in our community spaces to make a. I guess we want to have a greater impact in certain places. And those are the ones that I think like good design does take time period. Yeah, it does because there's so much thought and consideration that has to go into that and you can't algorithm that. Yeah. Well, this, this type, this type of dialogue is something that I think uh, more people in our space need to be having. I think this, one of the, one of the things that it's frustrating for me is uh when you're a technologist or in the technology space, I feel like there's a kind of an accepted role that you often play. Um, and that is to hype that technology, get people excited. It's the old Cedric price quote, right? Technology yeah. is the answer. Now what's the question? Yeah. You're Nate, you're the hammer and you only have, <laughs> you yeah. use that tool for every problem that comes along. Right. Yeah. 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 And then you know that you see that you see that come out like, so, and, and you also see this consumption of, of marketing information around certain concepts and sort of the regurgitation of that to you know certain clients like generative design is the thing Autodesk is pushing it. And, you know, I'm going to try to create a market for it or like kind of really promote it as like a, a, a cheerleader of sorts. Um, but I think we're also at a moment where there's so much information and data and technology available. where a critical eye on, is this making it better? Mm-hmm is increasingly important um, and and really kind of thinking about also the duality of of the technology um, and the, both its benefits and its perhaps and perhaps its um, you know sc- you know scary aspects you know uh, if I think about the internet of things yeah. for example yeah. and sent you know buildings that are increasingly more intelligent um, you have enormous opportunity to create scenarios where you can really optimize their operations, save energy, um, right size your building program because you understand how the spaces are being utilized. But then on the other hand, you have um, kind of more nefarious ends in play. Like, is this invading privacy? Is, yeah. is this creating a cybersecurity hole where my building can be hacked? You know, is it really exposing these risks? And I think it's really, I say this a lot, um, to other architects, it's sort of like, you know, architects need to be involved in this conversation more than anything else, I feel, because I remember sort of architecture 101, you're kind of maybe designing your first house plan and you need to understand the distinction between public, the public space and the private space of a house uh, or, or, or any other operation like that. If it's retail, it's the front of house and the back of house, you know, right. um, restaurants and so on. So we're, you know, we're trained very early to think about public and private or, and, and what this means from a spatial quality and um, environment type of thing. Um, but a lot of that's being, you know, dissolved um, where, you know, you might be in the seemingly private space, but if you've got an Alexa sitting in that room, 
yeah, it's not, is it really public or is it really private? You know? Right, and, right. and I think that kind of critical, like finding what, where, what is the answer? Um, or where, where can an architect, you know, help guide and position these new opportunities in a way that isn't, you know, um, you know, crossing, crossing the line on, on things that, you know, some people value quite, quite, quite highly, which is privacy. And, you know, I don't want my house to go haywire, like in Mr. Robot, because some hacker got into it and is now turning the lights on and off on me. Yeah. I think a healthy dose of skepticism is, is a, a virtue at that point, right? Because you are a technology guy. I think people probably do have an expectation when they talk to me or you regarding like what your point of view is going to be regarding technology. And that is like, yeah, more technology. And it's not the case. I think it's, it does take that healthy dose of skepticism to say like, no, I don't have any IOT devices in my house for the, for these reasons. And what was interesting was I had an electrician out doing some work and he was like, yeah, just put a smart plug over there. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, let me tell you about smart plugs. And he was like blown away. He says, dude, I use these on every single project. I had no idea that, you know, it was, you know, obviously it's it's on your Wi-Fi. Now it's a potential threat on all of your network activity, potentially, right? Like it doesn't mean it is, but at the same time, he was like, I'd never even considered that. And how many clients does he see every week where he's like, yeah, just pick up one of these smart plugs or this switch or this thermostat or whatever, where it's like seemingly the outcome is or the the benefits are X, Y, and Z, but no one's talking about the nefarious stuff that could happen there. It's really interesting because like, I think that the ideal picture is the one that typically gets painted in these conversations. And you do need somebody there to be like, yes, and <laughs> yeah. be aware of all of these things and, and make sure they're in the meeting minutes. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, and, and I think that is not to say that stuff like this cannot have enormous benefit. I mean, we, I think as a society, yeah. we have collectively accepted that smartphones have made aspects of life a lot better in, in many instances, the ability to kind of place an order, text message, check your network, it has its benefits and its advantages, but, um, you know, we, we did, I think also collectively give up certain things when we, when we went that route and, um, you know, it opens up all sorts of, um, I think interesting political paradigms as a result, uh, as well. Like I, I really appreciated Andrew Yang's perspective on shouldn't people be buying our data from us Yeah. instead of having it just be up there for free where we're essentially the product and yep. it's to create a new line of thinking in, in terms of public policy. And I, I think it's extremely fascinating and a conversation that we absolutely need to be having and automation too. Yeah. You know, what happens when, you know, uh, I, I make algorithms for, you know, for a living, <laughs> you know, automation is a big part of our business model and helping people try to find efficiencies and things like that. But there are enormous consequences to automation. Um, if, if it's positioned as a, you know, a, a way to replace labor and, you know, you could, you can both create jobs, but you can also destroy livelihoods with it. Sort of, yeah. You're wielding really powerful stuff when you're dealing with technology. I was just the other day, I was, um, I installed the DuckDuckGo privacy browser on my phone. It yeah. was the recommended browser by this, this new site that's out there for, you know, when it, it's really taking privacy and security into consideration. And the first thing that it, it tells me is, um, 
because I, I it's like the first time I'd use the browser and I'm sure it doesn't do this every time. Maybe it does, but it said like Amazon and Google were both trying to watch you go to this website. And it's like, I just installed this browser. Yeah. I didn't, this is a brand new install in a, in a phone where every application is sandboxed. So how does that work? And it just starts to get you to think like how hard people are trying to get this information to create this profile so that they can target advertising at you amongst the many other things that they're actually then selling that data to. Like I'm, I'm going through a refinance in my house. How many people now have my name, email address, physical address? Because those companies are like, like your LG TV is, you know, when you go in to update the firmware, like they're, they're making, how much of their money that they're making and their revenue every year is based on selling your data to somebody else because TV prices keep going down. People only buy a new TV every, what, 10 years? So how else are they going to make money off of you as recurring revenue? They've got to find ways, tech, you know, they, they don't have to, but they do find ways to do that. Yep. Uh, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy making. No question. And, you know, I think about like uh, what this means for like as built environments become smarter, which again can have enormous impact on being able to moderate and control um, energy consumption, um, reduce waste, potential waste, right size buildings to where you're not projecting how wrongly how your building is going to be used. And maybe, maybe you don't need to build a new facility at all as like a, a clinic because you can optimize your current space. Mm-hmm. enormous benefits but the idea that you can be walking through you know uh, a data park, collection machine a data collect yeah a park a park a public space becomes a data collection machine the idea that you enter into a lobby and it's like it knows everything about your your day-to-day habits which you know it sort of already does in some into some respect but hey i saw you you stopped to watch um a, a soccer game in central park would you like to buy a new reebok set of shoes like like and you didn't know i'm like i just took a walk like <laughs> and, and a lot of it's not even personalized like you talked about alexa being in your kitchen yeah. right it's like well there's six people in my house it doesn't know who and it doesn't i mean it, yeah. it'll ask hey we can make alexa personal for you would you like to you know tell me who you are so that i recognize your voice and, and the answer is like always no but Okay, so my wife is searching for coffee makers for a, a gift for, let's just say, me, and and then all of a sudden I'm walking through a mall or whatever, and an advertise a personalized quote unquote advertisement pops up that says, "Hey, I noticed you were shopping for coffee," you know, and it's like, "No, I wasn't. Uh, somebody else in my house was," and you just ruined it for me, right? Because uh, on some levels it's creepy personal, and on other levels it's totally anonymous within a small subset of people and those wires get crossed all the time uh it's just not very smart in many ways it's but it is kind of operating under the assumption that more data is better and just applying that to yeah. your persona yeah right. <laughs> i didn't see this conversation going that direction but i think it's it's a really good one to be having i mean when it comes to technology i mean in, in some ways it is the conversation in, in my view um mm. when it comes to uh you know, where is the future? What is the future of technology? Are we orchestrating our 
our collective knowledge and our tools towards ends that are going to benefit the built environment and the people that occupy them? Are we motivated by other uh, factors uh, that, that, you know, may not have the best interests of others at heart? You know, these are, I think, critical conversations that, you know, inform practices um, and inform the adoption of tools. Um, I, I really liked, I don't know if you've, uh, if you've ever read any of Kevin Kelly's work, uh, yeah. you know, the, he has Huge that fan. Book. Yeah. yeah. What technology wants. Yeah. Uh, it's a great book. Uh, how old is, it? I don't remember like when he actually wrote and published that one. I feel like it's been close to 18 years. I, I'll have to check on that, but it's, it's an older book now, um, but it's so relevant. I mean, I love the sections of that book that talk about the Amish and he spent a lot of time with the Amish yeah. Um, and we, we tend to think about communities like that as being very like anti-technology. Um, and he starts to discuss, well, actually that's not the case. What they do is they'll bring in technology into their community um, and they'll have people evaluate technology. And then the way that they decide whether or not to bring it into their community or not is by weighing what the potential benefits are to the community, but also what they may lose as a result of having that adopted. I thought, wow, what a powerful way to think about all of this stuff when it comes to making an investment in training on analytics or, or saying, um, Hey, you know what, we're going to invest in this new automation script um, as a company and being able to say like, you know, on the surface, this seems like it's going to deliver X, Y, and Z, but what, what might we lose as a result Mm. of, of doing it? And weighing those pros and cons, um, looking for the unforeseen benefits, but also perhaps uh, detriments in the context of a, of a business culture, I think is really important. And then also figuring out where the where the barriers and the roadblocks may be for getting to the the benefits uh, will is also critical. And that's hopefully what we try to bring to the conversation as a group too is just like helping helping enable those those types of conversations. I, I kind of, you know, I, I appreciate the the writing that you do, Nate, on your website because I think it is kind of, it's typically coming from a point of view that is not the obvious. I think that's what hmm. how I would describe it is you you like even even taking this most recent example that we're just talking about on the on the podcast, the computers are hard article, right? It's like you need to take a clean look at your assumptions. And I think you need to take a clean look at, like you're talking about with the with the what technology wants book is what are going to be the behavioral changes, good or bad or both, that need to be weighed when making this decision because those can have long term good or detrimental effects. Um, I think it it kind of does go back to the be careful what you ask for assumption that more is better or that we need data. It's like you, you might not like what you find. It's like the, there's, there's, there's an aspect of like, it's like the monkey's paw, you know, the, you know, you, you wish for something and it comes true, but it's like, it creates a very different reality that you may not, may not want. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned Kevin Kelly, who, who else do you kind of look for, look at as, um, kind of i don't i want to say thought leader but like who who inspires you um in in reading and writing and or 
or podcasting or any any way that you're kind of consuming this this stuff out there who's who's influencing you in your thinking i've been you know i like the the work by the suskinds yeah uh that that's that's really been an interesting one where they talk about professional biases has has been one i think that i have a blog article about sort of applying some of their thoughts about different levels of bias that you you kind of see in professional culture and looking at architecture uh, um, and, and the professions around mm-hmm. architecture in that way, the idea that professional bias can be something that uh, kind of blinds you to certain opportunities uh, relative to technology that have, he has like a form of bias called the AI fallacy, which is a mm-hmm. really uh, interesting uh, look at where people think certain technologies are going versus where they are going and the fear that goes in go, that kind of surrounds certain topics um, that can often cause people to dismiss uh, ideas. Um, that's, that's really been, I think I would say informative to our work. I mean, when it, when it comes to kind of influencing you know, my work and I think the work, a lot of it is, is more conversational, you know, mm-hmm. um, and active, you know, I have a, a group of friends that are in this space of technology um, and we get into debates about different topics. We'll lend our point of view um, in a very open way. And even in, in, in my own team, people bring various you know, articles and content to the table and we talk about them and have debates about them. And yeah, I, can, I might even bring this back to this idea of the world that we currently live in and we might have and attend various conferences, right? Where we see a presenter talk about a topic for 20 minutes. Um, yeah. And it might be like five minute Q&A. And one of the things that I've observed about these types of venues over the years is that it just kind of seems to be the, the same conversation happening over and over again. The same 20 minute conversation, the same five minute Q&A why don't we have better workflows? Why is training still a problem? Well, look, we solved this cool project problem and it just kind of, it's the same, it's like the same thing. And the, and the yeah. real meat of these events always seems to come after all of that content. It's like a, the conversational side of things. And one of the reasons that I like jumped at this idea of doing a podcast with you. And one of the reasons why we, you know, I've been in the past have been motivated to do like these, these types of video podcasts and, you know, do prove it and so on right. is the long form. I, I really like the long form conversation now uh, more than I do watching a 10 minute, 20 minute presentation about a subject uh, because you can get into some nuance and, and, and you can get into like what we just got into. We started, we started talking about privacy you know, yeah. as, a, as a policy and as an outcome and a consequence of, of these tools. You don't get that in, in a uh, quick hit presentation. Yeah. And so, you know, I like, li- I like listening to, to, to podcasts. I, I listen to a lot of long form, you know, interviews, I would say um, I like, you know, um, I've been absorbing information from stuff that is not architecture, I guess. Like I love like watching, you know, videos and tutorials just about craft yeah. how to make things like the 3d printing side of thing. And one, some, we often think about 3d printing as being like, Oh, you just make a model and this thing will print it for you. Perfect. Like, every the, time, right? Perfect. Every, there is so much that goes into calibrating your 3d printer that yeah. 
that I can, I will argue that it is a craft. It It changes the way you bank models, right? Like there's, it goes back to it, it, it reinforce, it could reinforce or it could completely dismantle the way that you think about building a model so that it can be 3d printed. Yep. So cool. Yeah. And that, that type of, that type of like, just finding, finding people that are experts in their craft or looking to push their craft forward and then looking at their content and watching it um, is kind of where I'm drawing a lot of inspiration at the moment. I had a, a podcast episode with Dane Stokes from ZGF and he kind of in passing, and I, I did include it in the show notes, but he had this uh, mention of Colin Furr's YouTube channel. And he's this this guy who just kind of builds whatever the, the challenge du jour is. Like he turned a bumper car into a drag racer, right? And yeah. I love watching that kind of stuff. I think like, cause Dane himself is a, he's a fabricator. He has a background in design and fabrication. So he's turning his Porsche 914 into a, he, he, he calls it the ankle project ankle biter, but it's a, it's a fantastic project where it's basically a completely custom car by the end of this thing. And I, I love that kind of thing because it gets you out of your, your daily conversation that just kind of becomes like hard to separate the signal from the noise at some point. And it gives you an another outlet to recalibrate why you think what you think, how you approach problem solving. I mean, there's so many examples of that kind of stuff that that comes up by like I I'm remodeled this space myself, right? And so when you actually have to make things, it actually makes you go back and reconsider how you model things and how you draw things and how you represent things and what you call things um, because you never had to take sequencing into account before, hmm. right? For instance. So um, all of a sudden that's a major problem when you've got, you know, this, in my case, this sauna in my room that is, I have to now remodel the entire space around it. Um, it's, it's funny, funny stuff. Like you never think about in your day to day until you actually do it yourself. And I think like, that's what's, that's why I always ask people like what, what else is out there that's influencing you? That's, potentially outside of your your day-to-day because i think it does kind of show how it, it shows like where those other experiences and where those other channels of thinking are coming from and it might give people a reason to get out of their own kind of comfort zone of where they operate day-to-day especially as we're like on this screen all the time now yeah right it is do things that are off the screen right <laughs> right i'll tell you um two shows that i watch on the regular are you, you know, their YouTube shows. Um, I talked about how I don't watch new content. I say that in the context of like popular media, uh, uh-huh. but I watch a lot of like just YouTube maker shows. Love Adam Savage's show. Mm-hmm. And like, just, you know, so, sometimes he'll do like the, the live stream build of something and yeah. just to watch him think about how he sorts parts at the front end of any project um, and how he thinks through how he's going to build something. He did a, a, a pretty interesting one on just, you know, making a vacuum form mold uh, for a, a, a costume project he was working on. It was like great to see how he thought yeah. that through and, and, you know, created vacuum form um, piece. Um, like little things like, uh, I, I never called this, called this up, but I'm sure you've, you've experienced you're in the shop and you drop like a nut or a screw and then you're like having to find it. 
Yep. And you don't quite know where to look. And he's like, one of the things I learned was it's called sending out a search party. If you just drop something, find a piece that's about the same size and drop and watch where it goes. <laughs> because then, because Brilliant. that basically creates the search radius that you need to look to find the thing that you actually did lose. And I'm like, I'm using that. I'm using that right. now all the time. Right. And, uh, you know, in some ways that also um, applies to debugging, you know, it's influenced my work. You know, if I, if I encounter a bug and I don't quite know where it is, the idea of setting a search party or sending, you know, putting something in the code that kind of tells me where I need to be looking a little bit more closely um, for, for a class and like being a little bit more surgical with your breakpoints and the debugging process, you know, it all applies. The other one I will, I will point your viewers to. I love it so much. I love this show, the hacksmith. Mm. This is, and it's, it's all fun, nerdy stuff. He makes basically the, the premise of their show is, They'll take popular props, um, popular uh, things that are out there, in, uh, like Star Wars, like the lightsaber. This guy made a functioning lightsaber out of a plasma cutter. My like, son, my son sent me this. Yes, it's like, <laughs> and the way they think about a problem like that, and they're like, okay, yeah. we're going to use laminar flow to control the volume, and so we can get like a really nice, precise uh, blade that can cut through things. It's great. They have, they have an ongoing, or I don't know if they're still doing it. They had an ongoing project where they're like, I want to make the exoskeleton uh, from aliens. The one that Ripley comes out with. And the big yellow one. Yeah. The big yellow one. And they, yeah. they go, they go through this reverse engineering process. They're like, well, in the movie they did this and they probably did it. So it looked cool and refined on screen, but it actually needs to be engineered like this in order to get the right tubing to, to do this. And they've, they did crush tests on the art, like the, the armature. Wow. It's so cool. <laughs> So it's all about taking these kind of fantastical concepts from movies and comic books and using their shop, which is amazing. I'm like envious of their shop. Yes, they must have course. so much, they must get so much good ad revenue and Patreon supporters <laughs> where they can just have this crazy shop and employ employees people where they're just like, yeah, we're going to make these things and then we're going to break stuff with it. It's like, it's amazing. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, uh YouTuber was not on the official list of acceptable, uh, careers when i was growing up um but now it it certainly is and it's so funny because like our kids will watch the crap out of youtube and yeah. i'm like you can watch it all day long but like and, and you can talk about how you want to be a streamer and all this i said but you actually just have to do it you also have to be really you have to be really talented i think they're like an, yeah and you only get that way by doing it it's like you have to actually put in the time to do it uh I don't really mean to go down a rabbit hole here, but I think it, it's so interesting to watch what kids are interested in and what, how they can, you really literally can do anything with your life now. Um, and I'm not going to tell you what you can't do, but you've got to do something. <laughs> you've got to do it. I, mean, I You would make me so proud if you became a, a professional YouTuber. I think that would be so cool because there's so much good stuff on there. I once cited YouTube as like my favorite productivity tool. And, and it can also be exactly the opposite, yeah. right? We're talking about the rabbit hole, but, but man, there's so it, it is, it is now like we talked about on, a, on another previous episode. It is now the Haynes manual of how to take anything apart on your car and fix it. Right. Totally. Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting to see. So, so I have a question. You, you mentioned Adam Savage's show and the hacksmith, obviously I'm sure you were a fan of Mythbusters and stuff, but, but did the algorithm point you in this direction of the hacksmith <laughs> successful I algorithm. <laughs> I don't know how, I don't know how I first came, came up. I think it was probably like what you probably had a link that was sent to you for like the, his latest, like lightsaber. Yeah. Um, 
I think it was a couple of years ago where I came across a very similar one where it was like one of his first iterations of that experiment where he was heating up to high temperatures, steel rods to get them to glow um, and, and have the same. And I'm like, Oh shoot, what is this person doing? Came up and I started digging deeper. I'm like, he made functional Wolverine claws and like Captain America's (laughs) shield yeah, yeah, like I'm in. That he breaks all of it. He like he doesn't. He like makes it, and he it's like not really, precious. Yeah. It put it put he puts it all through the, its paces. That's cool. And then it, the build up is like, okay, well, what happens if I take this new lightsaber I made? Will Captain America's shield withstand the the the? And I'm like, yes, this is everything I've ever wanted in, in a in a show. <laughs> a universal mashup, yeah. A universal sure. mashup. That's awesome. I I wonder if the algorithm is so smart that it can influence my son to influence me. <laughs> right <laughs> uh that that's creepy all right well uh I, I really appreciate you hanging out today uh there are other things i would love to talk to you about um i think we kind of touched on but uh, yeah we could save it for another time i think that would be super fun sure well thanks for thanks for indulging the conversation longer than we had scheduled but uh back to checking out the news i guess oh don't do that yeah don't yeah scroll <laughs> Hey, before you run off, is there? Uh, I, I will include links to anywhere that you would like to point people in your direction. So go ahead and spout those off right now. Sure. Well, uh, if you want to know a little bit more about Proving Ground, uh, be sure to check out provingground.io. Um, that's our main website. We have also a number of apps that you can uh, buy and download at apps.provingground.io. Uh, feel free to troll me on Twitter um, at Arcanate. Uh, is my handle. I'm sure that'll be included in the link down below. Yep. Feel mm-hmm. free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate what you're doing at Proving Ground, but also um, just like the way that you kind of push some buttons out there and get people thinking. I think that's super important. And I hope uh, so. ho- hopefully we, we did a little bit of that today, but um, you know, to more in the future. So cheers. Right. Thanks, Evan. Cheers. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.